0: I'm thrilled to be with you. I want to talk today about guns. And um, just so you know, this sermon, probably, if this is your first time, I don't normally talk as long as I'll probably talk today. Um, I also don't normally use as many notes as I'll use today to try to cut down on the long talking. Um, But I want to talk about guns. And I know this, for lots of people, is a really touchy subject. And it was really clear when I posted online this week, I'm going to talk about guns, this Sunday, and based on comments and messages, which were super supportive mostly, but which were also like, I hope you you hope you stay safe. Like, what? Like, the, when somebody decides to say a thing about a thing, we have to, like, hope they stay safe. I think that gives you sort of where we are in the United States of America in 2022 when it comes to guns. That if you're going to talk about it, if you're going to criticize our practices, if you're going to criticize our laws, if you're going to criticize the way or, or, or just like offer a different vision, that somehow that means you're maybe not quite as safe as you should be. Now, some people will think that I have no business talking about this because they don't think pastors should preach politics. How many of you have ever heard that? Like you shouldn't preach politics. You should just stay in your lane. Um, here's the thing. Talking about politics just means that we're talking about how we order our common life. Politics, all it's about is about how we choose to live together in the world, in our society. That's what politics are about. Everything ends up being political. Everything is political. Everything is political. There's just no way around it. And saying certain things aren't political probably means you're coming from a place of privilege that allows it to not feel political for you. Right? Saying, well, that's politics and you should stay over here means that this issue that you're not wanting to hear addressed, it probably means that you have a privilege around that issue. Um, and so, today, I'm, I'm going to get political. Now, here's my hope. I hope what people really mean when they say, don't get political, I hope what they really mean, like deep down, is what they're really talking about is partisanship. What they're really saying is, don't, like, don't go up there and just spout some party line about something. Don't go up there and just take digs at the group of people that you think are wrong politically. Don't just become partisan. And I'm going to try not to do that. (laughs) Set the bar low and you'll slide under it. (laughs) I'm going to try not to do that. But here's the other thing. As Matthew McConaughey said in his press conference this last week, this really shouldn't be a partisan issue. And if talking about gun violence and the epidemic and pandemic of gun violence that is just, it's been around for a long time, but it seems like this calendar year it's just been one after the other after the other. If like talking about that shouldn't be a part, we should all be wondering why our kids are dying at school. We should all be wondering why people are dying at church. We should be wondering why a trip to the grocery store ends up being a one-way trip. And that shouldn't be partisan. People left, right, and in the middle should be having this conversation. Because no other country does this. We have Grace Point family all over the map that live in other countries. And in their countries, this doesn't happen. It happens here, in this country. Because in other countries, they have an event a a mass shooting of some sort, some event. They have an event. And then they immediately act to change the laws. And they do the sensible thing and actually address the problem. We've done that in this country before. How many of you flew on an airplane before 9-11? Do you remember what that was like? You kind of just walk back to the gate and watch somebody get on a plane. and Like I just was on an airplane last week. You have to basically disrobe. And then when you get to the end of the little conveyor belt and everybody's waiting on you and you're trying to put your belt and shoes back on, and you're like, I wore the wrong shoes, and you're like fighting with it. That's because of September 11th. We had a a terrorist attack in our country. And we immediately started changing laws to make sure that the process of boarding and flying on an airplane was safer. And I've heard politicians bring this up. Well, after 9-11, we didn't ban planes. No, but you go through that thing now. You didn't go through that thing before. We made changes. We're the only country that deals with mass shootings the way we deal with mass shootings. As I was thinking about this, there were a couple memories that really just came flooding. It was the first time, and if you do research, you realize that this this wasn't the first school shooting ever in our country or anything like that. But December 1st, 1997, Paducah, Kentucky. Does anybody remember the Heath High School shooting. I was a junior. It was my junior year of high school. Um, three people died and five people were injured when a 14-year-old student opened fire on the high school campus. And I remember being a junior in high school and just thinking, that's the strangest thing. That's so foreign. It's not anything I ever imagined when I came to school that that was even a possibility. And yet, for kids just across the state, I grew up in eastern Kentucky, and this was in western Kentucky, and just across our state, um, kids went to school that day and lost their lives and they, just because they went to school that day. But the one I'll never forget was April 20, 1999. That was Columbine High School. I was a senior in high school. And on that specific day, April 20th, in Colorado, there were 15 deaths and 24 injuries when two students went on a shooting rampage in their high school. And I can remember us, a senior class, putting up this big kind of blank paper. You know the blank paper teachers used to have in those big rolls? I don't know if that's still a thing. Like a big sheet of that and all of us signing a letter, uh, writing a letter and signing our names to the senior class at Columbine High School. I'll never forget that. And those really, for me, were the beginning of becoming aware. But then you had Virginia Tech in 2003. You had Sandy Hook Elementary in Connecticut in 2012. And I remember when Sandy Hook happened, I thought, that's the last one. That's the last one. These were little kids. Surely, we will develop the moral courage as a country to maybe make some folks mad so that other folks can actually grow up and live their lives. Didn't happen. Six years ago today, Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, 49 of God's beloved children were killed. Of course, there's Stoneman Douglas High in Parkland, Florida in 2018. Just a few weeks ago, a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, where a white supremacist terrorist essentially murdered folks who were just trying to get groceries. And just a couple weeks ago in Uvalde, Texas, if you're like me, you were kind of going about your day, and then the news started coming out about what was going on, and every couple of minutes, it was like the number was going up. something going to change this time? Is that going to move the needle? I think it's important to know what we're talking about when we're talking about a mass shooting, because there's actually a definition for that. Mass shooting involves four or more people being shot, injured, or killed in a single incident at the same general time and location, not including the shooter. So you've reached the level of mass shooting when four or more people are injured or killed. Since 2009, there have been 277 mass shootings in the United States, resulting in 1,565 people being killed and 1,000 being wounded. And these numbers are all dated, because since I prepared this part of the sermon, other things have happened. The U.S. has had more than 2,000 school shootings since 1970, and since Columbine in '99, almost 300,000 students have been on campus during a shooting event at their school. (laughs) Since Uvalde, Texas, May 24th, just a few weeks ago, there have been 33 mass shootings. Since May 24th, again, this is a dated number. There were 692 in uh, 2021, and as of this week, there have been 246 in 2022, with no signs of slowing down. Schools, houses of worship, medical facilities, movie theaters, malls, you name it, they have all been made to feel less safe? How many of you, when you're in a public place and there's a loud noise, you immediately start trying to address where the safest place to go is? <laughs> yeah. What do we do about this e- epidemic of gun violence and mass shootings in our country? Now, I, I'm gonna admit, I'm not a politician. I, I'm not. My, my expertise, if I have one, is not in public policy. I have really strong opinions but what I'm actually the thing I know is being a pastor and the thing I know is theology and so what I want to do today is I want to think theologically about our problem because one of the problems that happens with this is people try to approach lots of issues through the lens of their faith but then not others For example, when I engage with conservative Christians around the issue of reproductive rights and justice, they are really clear that their position is grounded in their understanding of their faith, right? But then when you talk about guns, faith is somehow absent, and we're all about the Constitution. It's just an interesting swerve. So I actually want to think theologically. As a Christian, as a person who wakes up every day of my life and says, I'm going to choose today to follow Jesus what does my understanding of my faith teach me now and I also want to name there are really diverse perspectives on faith right like you put three Christians in the room you've got 15 different faiths probably (laughs) depending on the day and the tilt of the earth and the temperature and all that but I just want to share from my perspective the understanding that has helped me sort of frame this and I I want to ask a larger question because there's always a thing behind the thing right like have you, you ever get mad and you're really mad, and it's over. Somebody spilled the jello, and you're just angry, and you lose it. And then when you finally calm down, you're like, oh no, it's because all that other stuff happened last week. And what culminated in the spilling of jello set me off. But the reality is, I wasn't mad about jello. I was mad about Harvey and the marketing department telling me my mock ups were bad, right? Like that sort of thing. So what's the thing behind the thing? And so the question today really isn't like, what do we do about guns? That's the spilling, that's spilling jello in a sense. There's a bigger question, and that bigger question that every day I get older, and every day that I'm, like, I'm wake up a dad, and I wake up a pastor, and I wake up thinking about people in public spaces where these things happen, I realize the question we should be asking, and it, it will speak to guns, But the real question is, what kind of world do we want to live in? Do we want to live in a world where the lives of children are considered an acceptable loss so that some people can own weapons of war? Is that the world we want to live in? Do we want to live in a world where these things keep happening? Or do we want to live in a different world? a better world and with everything I just can't I can't help myself like I've tried to break up with the Bible and it just keeps coming back Or maybe I keep going back to it and what what I love about the Bible is the thing they never taught me growing up and that is that throughout the Bible what you see is not a perspective on anything like I'm here in the shape I'm in today because I did the one thing I was told to do in youth group and in Sunday school read the Bible I did, and then they got mad. Like, I couldn't figure out. Like, I did the thing you told me to do. I read the Bible, and here we are. And the Bible doesn't present one vision on anything. If you read it from cover to cover, what you'll find is our spiritual ancestors all offering perspective from their location in the world. Here's what we think God is like. Here's how we think the world should be. Here's what it means to live a good life. Here's why bad things happen to good people, and why good things happen sometimes to bad people. Here's why things are how they are. That's what the Bible's offering in many places. And it offers diverging opinions, perspectives, and visions. I want to begin with one vision to answer that question. What kind of world do we want to live in? And it begins with the prophet Isaiah. Now, the first part of the book of Isaiah was written in the 8th century BCE. It was written at a time... When Isaiah, where Isaiah did his work, the people of Judah were under the threat of the Assyrian Empire. They were afraid they were going to be beaten up and taken taken off. They they, they really were afraid it was curtains. And so the book of Isaiah chapter 1 begins with this really depressing warning of judgment. Because you have not pursued justice, there are dark days ahead. Because you haven't chosen to live justly, doom and gloom could be on the way. And yet, even in those tough times, the, the writer essentially says, that's not the last word, there's hope. And in Isaiah 2, we're given this beautiful vision of what, through this prophet's lens, what the world could be. Isaiah 2:1, the word that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in days to come, The mountain of the Lord's house, the temple, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in her paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate. For many people, so there's this vision of eventually we're, we're all divided in the world, and it's all all the nations are doing their own thing, and it's war and chaos. But there's coming there's a possibility. It's never a promise. It is never a done deal. The prophets aren't saying no matter what you do in the world, this is how it's going to go. What the prophets are saying is if you choose to if you choose to live a different way. Here's what could happen: this world is so divided and. Immersed in violence and chaos could all come together. And then there's this next line. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. Their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. Isaiah has this vision of a day. When people no longer... Use their creativity to create weapons of harm and death, but instead use their creativity to bring wholeness and healing and enoughness to the whole wide world. Micah, the prophet, agreed with this vision, this guy Micah. if he's living in a similar context and he kind of i'm guessing he probably knew about isaiah or else this is just they're real fortunate they both had similar help in creating this but here's what micah says in the days to come the mountain of the lord's temple will be established as the highest mountain so it's really similar right like there's this moment where we're going to bring everybody together but listen to what micah says god shall judge between many peoples and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hook. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one will make them afraid. Like Micah's like, oh, Isaiah, that's great. Let's turn that up to 11. And how do you do that? Do you know what it means for everybody to have their own vine and their own fig tree? Everybody's got enough. Mike is saying there's a potential and a possibility in this world if we pursue justice that the very things that cause people to create weapons of death and use them on other people that maybe we can actually do something about those causes and maybe we can choose instead of a violent bloody future a future where everybody has their own fig tree and everybody has their own vine to sit under And nobody has to be afraid. The end of violence is tied to the presence of justice. That's why when you've heard people, maybe you've participated in a march in the last several years, and one of the the mantras, one of the chants in the march is, no justice, no peace. That's not a threat. It's naming the situation. That without justice, when people are just, When they're having to strive and fight for like the very next crust of bread they're going to eat, you can never really have peace. So this first option is a vision about where the world, about a world where weapons and tools of violence are transformed into instruments of life, health, and creativity. It's an alternative, and there's this other alternative vision though, right? So there's Isaiah and Mike are like, this is the world we want to be a part of. This is the world we want, a world where we stop killing each other and where we don't even make weapons that we could use to kill each other. But instead, we use all of our creativity to bring about healing and health and wholeness in the world. But that's not the only vision in the Bible. Anybody ever read the book of Joel? Last week, lots of people read references out of the book of Joel because it's actually used... uh, Last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday. Um, And if you uh, grew up in a liturgical church, you know that's a pretty significant day. And if you grew up Pentecostal... That's where you came from. Um, And there's this, look, Joel has this beautiful thing about that your old old folks will dream dreams and your young people will see visions and when God's spirit is poured out, everything's going to change. So there's a lot of stuff we like about Joel. And then you come to Joel chapter 3. And there's a good chance that all of this wasn't written by the same author, but it got compiled into the same text. So just naming that. Listen to what Joel says in Joel 3, 9 and 10. Proclaim this among the nations. So Isaiah and Micah proclaimed among the nations a day when the division and violence and chaos would end. This is what this is Joel's message for the nations. Consecrate yourself for war. Stir up the warriors. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, "I'm a warrior." Anything stand out in that text? Joel's like, whoa, 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 you've been beating your swords into plowshares? No, 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 no. You've got to reverse that because we're at a critical moment, and the only way to do this is if we have bigger weapons than the other people. Joel calls for the people of God to be armed and dangerous to the rest of the world. When I read that text, I was reminded of the song by Don Henley. Any Don Henley fans in the room uh, from some of his solo work, The End of the Innocence." He has this line, Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, but now those skies are threatening. They're beating plowshares into swords for this tired old man that we elected king. And good art just stands up, doesn't it? And that's Joel's vision for the world. There are moments when we beat swords into plowshares, maybe, but there are definitely moments when we beat plowshares into swords. What these two visions are, one says we can live in a world without violence and and causing the death and harm of other people. And you have this other vision that says, nah, we really can't. And I realized all of my my, uh, adult life, the last 10 or so years, because I wasn't an adult until 10 years, I don't know how that works. Um, It depends on who you ask where we land on that scale today But Let's just say most of my life since I've begun seeing the Bible and God and all that differently I'll talk about this vision of the world and people are like, it's a little naive Do you live in the world? Do you know how the world works? Do you know how people are? People are just dangerous and so we have to make sure we're more dangerous than they are But back to our question, what kind of world do we want? What kind of world do we want to live in? What kind of world do I want to leave my children and my grandchildren? What kind of world do we want to leave behind for those we we are currently right now teaching kids what is acceptable in the world. And what we're telling them right now is it's actually easier for you to do active shooter trainings than it is for us to amend our laws. Your trauma is a smaller price to pay than ticking off somebody who wants to own something that they actually probably really have no business owning that's what we're actually saying and that question what kind of world do we want is actually a question like what do we do with our creativity because we're all creative right in in our own way I know like I'm not good at art I don't do art I don't paint things I don't make things I don't fix things I do some stuff with words that's like but we all have our own creativity that we bring to the world. And human beings, as a species, forever, we have been ridiculously creative. Watch this. How many of you came here in a car? <laughs> Nobody? <laughs> oh, you're teleporting now. I like that. No, think about this. Imagine going back in time 300 years, 200 years, and showing our ancestors a car you would be declared a god immediately. They would have no frame of reference. Imagine taking one of our ancestors and putting them on an airplane. I'll be honest, every time I'm on one, I'm a little freaked out that it works. You put all these people and all that luggage on a tin can and you throw it up in the sky and it goes places at 500 miles an hour. That doesn't make sense. We're pretty creative. How many of you have a phone in your pocket right now that connects you to the world? How many of you have one of the phones that when we text it turns it into a green bubble and not a blue bubble? <laughs> you Drive us all mad <laughs> with your in- refusal to just fall in line. <laughs> We're living still in a global pandemic in, in like a year, in a year. Scientists had created vaccines, and now we have other treatments for for COVID when it it just sort of, it was here, it's everywhere, and now we're we're treating it, and people are getting vaccinated, and people are getting COVID, yes, but far fewer people are dying and having severe disease. Isn't that kind of incredible? If you were to put me in that lab day one, I would have had no idea what to do, but thank God, somebody went in there like, all of this makes sense. Give me my potions. And they just started doing it. Humans are ridiculously creative. Now, the problem is, we have actually also used that creativity to create bombs and bullets and guns and weapons that allow us to take lives in far greater numbers. And then this is a, um, can I? I'm going to take a little side trail, this is my real major problem with the United States of America's use of drones in the world. Is Because now we send a robot, we have no, we don't have to worry. Is this actually a wedding? Is this a celebration? I don't know, maybe there's a terrorist there. Let's blow it up and we have no skin in the game. We just get to indiscriminately violate international borders and blow people up. With no consequence. That's what we do with our creativity. You know the story in the book of Genesis about the Tower of Babel where they bake bricks and they're suddenly like, oh, we've got bricks, and now we're God. In the book of Genesis, this understanding, what it means to try to play God is essentially, it's it's the knowledge of good and evil. It's deciding who lives and who dies. And what we are seeing in our world is a real time, if you look from the smelting of iron to the invention of the H-bomb, like you've seen throughout history, we are building that Tower of Babel higher and higher and higher, and we're all rushing to get there first. That's why it's called an arms race. A competition. Who, who, Who can get the biggest deterrent before everybody else? How will we use our creativity? Will we use it to stoke fear or to create flourishing? Those are the options. We can use our creativity to create and promote human flourishing. Imagine if we took a, f- a fraction of the money we spend on weapons and said, Oh my gosh, everybody can eat. Not just on our borders, everywhere. Imagine if we took a small amount of that and said, Oh gosh, everybody Everybody can have health care. Nobody has to decide whether they're going to live or pay their bills. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Actually, having a space to sleep is a human right. We can actually do something about that. Our kids are literally being killed and traumatized while we try to decide what matters most. And, y'all, to me, this is a freaking no-brainer. We should protect our kids, our future, at all costs. And I often, like I just had this thought the other day, how's that whole freedom thing working out for us? You can't go anywhere without looking over your shoulder wondering if there's going to be a bullet coming for you. Does that sound free? Does that feel free? Does knowing where the exit is at the movie theater, the minute you walk in, does that feel like you're free? It doesn't to me. And so I I think we have to, because it's pretty clear our leaders aren't going to act yet. So I think we, as a person of faith, as a pastor, as other people of faith, whether you call yourself that or not, you're in a, you, you know this is a church right now, you're in a, you're in this space, this historic music venue. And we have a certain amount of influence, we have a certain amount of pull. And so I think we have to summon our courage to call our leaders to real and tangible action. And look, I think focusing on mental health care is important and school security is important, but look, they will not solve this alone, and we are already asking teachers to do far too much for far too little pay. Packing heat is for teachers is not the option. It's just not. And to be honest, when you have actual trained people afraid to go in there, what in the world's a teacher gonna do? I feel like teachers, like we have a thing in common here, like I have a lane, I want to stay in it, and my my lane is not being Jack Bauer from 24, it's just not, and it's not your lane either, and we're already asking teachers to do too much for too little while we live in a state that's trying to undermine public education at every single turn, maybe that's a little partisan, but it's true. So I'll only say partisan things if I think they're true. How about that? <laughs> we have to call our leaders to pass laws that create universal background checks. We, we have to. Before somebody actually takes a gun out into the world, there should be an education and licensing process. How many of you right now drive a car without a license? I'm so glad nobody. Like one person was like, We need to ban assault weapons. That actually existed at one point, right? And I think it was during the George W. Bush years that that went away. We should bring that back. We should bring that assault weapons ban back. We need red flag laws in this country. And in other practical things, we can donate to organizations that are bugging these politicians. We can also bug them. I'll get there in a minute. But we can also donate to organizations so they can bug them even more. Right? Because I promise you that the NRA is bugging these politicians and they're flooding their coffers with money and are making it really easy for them to just pretend like there's not a problem. And so I think donate towards like every town. Right? Participate in marches and protests. How many of you were at March for Our Lives yesterday? Yeah, we had people, I saw pictures of Grace Point folks from all over the country at different March for Our Lives events. Y'all are incredible. We have to keep doing it. We have to keep going. And we have to call our senators and representatives to actually represent us. And not the gun lobby. So if you go to senate.gov, you can find wherever you are in the world, your people you can find their local number and their Washington number and you can just call them every single day ask them what they had for breakfast and when they're moving forward with gun reform now you can do that we can do that because the question is what kind of world do we want and you all I have come to believe that world that I think in this room we long for that world will not come into existence without our participation it is not going to fall out of the sky It is going to be made from the ground up. And it's going to have calluses on our hands and dirt under our fingernails to make it possible. Because right now, the refusal to act is turning our world not into God's dream, but into a human nightmare. And it's a nightmare we can end. What if we divest from the economy of violence? What if we say, like, that's not how we want to see the world run anymore? Like, who has the biggest tank is no longer going to determine the way forward in the world. What if we hear the call of Jesus to love our neighbor and our enemies and to embrace commitment to nonviolence and compassion? What if we use our ingenuity and creativity to heal and solve the problems of hunger and climate change? It's not impossible. It is all about courage it is about courage and I think there are far more people in this world of all faiths and no faiths who see the insanity of this moment and long for a different world there are far more of us than there are of them and we can demand change not awfully long ago I was sitting in one of our favorite Japanese restaurants my one of my daughters loves this particular Japanese restaurant not because she likes the food very much but she likes that little bowl of soup they bring out and the mushrooms in it like, she didn't know mushrooms were a thing. And now she's like, can we go to the place and get the soup? Can I, just, can I just get you mushrooms? But she loves to go and get the... And so one day I'm in there with her. I think it was just me and her. And in walks this guy. And he has the biggest gun i would ever seen in my life as a sidearm. And he's not a police officer, not undercover, like, not, not got a badge. He's just a guy coming to get sushi with a really big gun on his hip. Of course, I immediately got uncomfortable. And I immediately thought, when I look at that, I do not think, man, that guy is tough. (laughs) Look at that guy. He's going to have hip problems later in life. That gun is so big. I immediately thought, what an insecure and afraid person that you can't come for sushi without showing everybody how big your gun is. What an insecure and afraid human being. And you know, we are never our best in our most insecure and and afraid moments, are we? Is that ever the moment we're making our best life choices? No. That's the introduction. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm almost done. Almost God, what is he doing? Uh, I was thinking about another story in the Bible. It's a story we know is the story of the rich young ruler, right where this. Wealthy young man comes to Jesus and says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And we hear that question as, What must I do to be saved? Which means go to heaven. What do I have to do to get the heck out of here when I die? That's actually not the question. The question is, in the first century Jewish lens, What do I have to do to have a stake, a participant stake in the world to come? Because their understanding was there's this world. But there's a world to come, a world of justice and peace and compassion and goodness. And his question is, Jesus, how do I make sure I get to be a part of that world? And Jesus says, okay, follow the commandments. He's like, done. He lied. But Jesus lets it slide. And Jesus says, okay, uh, the last thing is just go go sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and come follow me. And the text says that the, the man was sad and he walked away because he had a lot of stuff, a lot of wealth. And Jesus just lets him go, right, because God doesn't strong, you can't strong arm a better world. That's the problem. And the man walks away. And the reality, what Jesus, I think, was trying to help him see is all the stuff he had, a world that is more just, where everybody has enough food to eat, he could have actually, if he'd taken up Jesus' challenge, he could have actually begun to bring that world into existence in his community. He could have taken his vast wealth and started feeding the hungry. He could have taken his vast influence and power and started using it to lift up those who are marginalized and excluded. He could, like, he's asking, what do I have to do to get there? And Jesus is literally saying, get rid of your stuff. Because the world can't, that can't happen until you let go of what you're holding on to. Because what you're holding on to is keeping that world from coming into existence. And I know in in large part, I'm mostly preaching to the choir probably in this room. But I'm sure there's somebody on the internet who will watch this later. Maybe hate watch it later. I don't know. But I I thought a lot this week about Jesus and, and the person who owns an assault rifle. And them saying to Jesus, what do I have to do to be a part of making a better world? Go melt down your assault rifle. Turn it into farming implement and go feed the world. But the world we want to see is not going to come about as long as we're still doing these things. And then I thought about our representatives and our senators. I know it's very, very unlikely that Marsha Blackburner, Bill Haggerty or Mitch McConnell or Rand Paul or Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, like, y'all are not going to watch this sermon. And the off chance, you do. and the off chance. Most of you call yourselves Christian. Most of you post random Bible verses on the internet. And I would just ask you to consider, if you were standing in front of the Jesus of the Bible right now, and asked him, what must I do to participate in a better world? I think he would tell you, stop stop being beholden to special interest money and start legislating to protect our kids. And I kind of hope you don't get a good night's sleep until you do it. Because parents all over this country, people all over this country, aren't sleeping. And I don't know about you all, this feels insurmountable in some ways to me. So what if we do this? You are not responsible for solving this problem in its totality. Here's our only responsibility, the next right thing. The next phone call the next donation, the next march, the next school board meeting, the next town hall. Whatever that looks like, when you are presented with an opportunity to begin to plant the seeds of a better, more just and generous world, that is all you and I are responsible for. Will you join me in that? Will you? Let's pray.